and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with questions arising from Monday's gun massacre at Michigan State University, in which three students were killed and five critically injured by a mentally ill gunman who had previously been charged with a felony for carrying a concealed weapon that was reduced to a misdemeanor, yet he was able to purchase two guns in Michigan in 2021. Joining us is Brian Colt, the Harold Norris Faculty Scholar and Professor of Law at Michigan State University. He's the author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies, and we will discuss how Republicans in the state legislature killed red flag laws and why the shooter on probation was able to shoot a gun out his back door on a number of occasions, causing neighbours to call the police who were not able to deal with the shooter's mental state, even though his father deemed him mentally ill. Then we'll examine the results of the meeting today of the 54 country members of the Ukraine Defence Contact Group at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany, with pleas for more weapons and ammunition from Ukrainian leaders becoming increasingly urgent as the critical battle for Mahmoud reaches a crisis point. Joining us is Dr. Tatsyana Kulikevich, a researcher in Eastern Europe who was born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida's School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the university's Institute on Russia. Then finally, we'll assess the Russian offensive buildup ahead of the first anniversary of their war in Ukraine and what Putin has in store on February the 24th and speak with Stuart Kaufman, a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Delaware. Well-versed in issues involving U.S. national security, U.S. foreign policy, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he specializes in ethnic conflict, U.S. national security strategy, and international relations history. He served as the director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs on the National Security Council staff, and is the author of Modern Hatreds, The Symbolic Politics of Ethnic War. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Brian Colt, who's the Harold Norris Faculty Scholar and Professor of Law at Michigan State University. He's the author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Colt. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Brian. And how did your students handle what happened on Monday at Michigan State University? And you also have a son there who's a undergraduate. He's also at Michigan State University, and he was there on that hideous day when three students were killed and five critically wounded. So let's begin with that. How did both your son and 
your students deal with what happened? Or how are they dealing with what happened on Monday? My students um, were uh, like like most of us in town in a variety of places. Some of them were at the law school or on campus at the time, but the shelter-in-place order went out, um, and so wherever we were, and that was both for on-campus and off-campus because no one knew where the shooter was at that time, we were all just waiting for news, waiting for the all-clear. And uh, so... For some people, I was at home, so uh, I was relatively comfortable. But the students who uh, I've heard from on campus, some of them were in uh, like a computer lab or in their dorm rooms. Um, my my son was at his uh, fraternity house, and so that was uh, that was difficult for some people if they were in if they were in a classroom uh, building. That they were maybe a little more concerned. Uh, a lot of them barricaded the doors, turned out the lights. Sadly, they've mostly come of age at a time when they've all been well trained on what what to do when there's an active shooter on campus. And so it was it was difficult. Uh, it was difficult for them to be confined and just waiting. Wait, waiting for something to happen, hopefully good news, but being prepared for the worst. But what were they hearing on their cell phones? And I mean, what kind of information do you have when you've got somebody on campus shooting people and that's all you know? You're told, what, to stay in place? I think, what is it? Stay in place and then, as a last resort, fight? Yes, well, the the instructions are to shelter in place in part because of what we saw happen afterwards, and I think this is probably typical of any incident like this on a on a large campus. With no information, a lot of people were listening to the uh, police scanner online, and um, you could you could hear uh, all manner of reports coming in from all over campus. Uh, anytime someone heard a noise, um, you would hear about it on the police scanner, which is which is great. You want the police to get all the information they can, and their job is to separate the signal from the noise. But those of us uh, listening to the scanner, I know a lot of the students were too, were just hearing the noise. And so it fed a lot of rumors. Uh, shots fired here, shots fired there. Uh, and And it ended up, as it happened, being a whole lot of nothing there were no other incidents um but there there was a lot of false information flying around and when people thirst for information i think unfortunately that um that that circulates and i think that it it adds to the anxiety level too but the police uh, i think did a a very good job again of of separating the signal from the noise and um as as soon as the picture went out of the suspect uh it was uh, very shortly after that, that a tipster several miles away uh, reported that he was there, and and once they confirmed that it was him, and he he shot himself. But once it was confirmed that it was him, they lifted the shelter-in-place order. So let's talk about this fellow, Anthony Dwayne McRae, who killed three Michigan State University students and critically wounded five others. 
He was arrested and charged with carrying a concealed weapon in 2019 and then had a plea deal, pled it down to a misdemeanor. But, you know, we're learning now from the Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel saying, that, and she, by the way, has two sons at, at Michigan State University, and they, like your son, are pretty shaken up. Uh, she said uh, on CNN, quote, this is an individual who just recently was off probation for gun offenses and in the exact same area. We know that he had his probation extended a couple of times, and I'm not sure why, and I'd like to know that. So what do we know about that? Wasn't there an incident at his home where he was shooting out the backyard? Yes, uh, I've seen news reports that the neighbors called the police um, multiple times that he was shooting um, shooting his weapon out uh, out the back door. They speculated maybe he was doing target practice, but but he was he was known to the police for um, doing that apparently, and they they were out to the house. I I guess didn't find probable cause to do anything about that. But of course, in retrospect, it would have been good if they had. I I, I think that the plea deal that he took, uh, speaking of the law professor now rather than just as a uh, local resident, the plea deal is pretty routine for something like this. He didn't have a he didn't have a criminal record at the time, and uh, it, it wasn't he wasn't threatening anyone. Um, it's it, pretty standard for them to plead that down to a misdemeanor. And having completed his probation, eventually he, he would have been uh, allowed at that point to get guns. But the clear signs of mental illness that uh, we're, we're hearing now that his family knew and uh, one of the proposals on the table we're hearing a lot about and was on the table before this happened was uh, for heightened um, scrutiny for the so-called red flag laws where if someone's believed to be a danger to themselves or to others then they can have their guns taken away. But of course that doesn't necessarily keep them from getting guns. It just makes it illegal for them to have guns. So it's not clear to me at, at this point, until we have more facts, whether any of the proposals on the table would have made a difference in this particular case. That said, he clearly was mentally ill, and I think a red flag law would would, would almost certainly have been helpful in this instance, at least reducing the risk. Uh, to, to answer your your, I think your, your previous question, you were asking about the standard protocol, what what everyone knew to do when the shelter in place text went out. We all got texts and uh, phone calls and things. The the protocol is run, hide, fight. If you're if you're in a place where there's danger, but you can evacuate safely, then you're supposed to do that. If if you can't, then you're supposed to hide, uh, you know, barricade yourself in the room, put furniture up against the door, uh, what have you. And then if there is no other alternative, if the shooter is there, then you have to try to, uh, try to fight, try to subdue him. But, but in that order, run, hide, fight, that's, that's what we're all taught. But 
McRae was able to purchase two guns in Michigan in 2021, and we're not sure whether these two handguns were the ones that were used, um, although it seems pretty likely. So what I find puzzling here, Brian Colt, is if after he was first charged with a felony, then it was pled down to misdemeanor, he was on probation. So when he was shooting his gun out the backyard and neighbors were complaining and the cops came, I don't know how many times that happened, but did that happen during his probation period? I mean, then they they would have had every reason to re-arrest him, wouldn't they? You can't fire guns in an urban neighborhood? Um, I I don't know. I don't know if that was why his probation was extended. I don't know if they confirmed that he was shooting out the back. Uh, I, I don't know what the laws are uh, in, in Lansing or in Ingham County or in Michigan about what you can and can't do with your gun uh, at your own home. I, I know that the neighbors were complaining that the lease went out, so it, it, it must have been at least worth investigating. But I, uh, I'm not, um, I'm not well versed on the on the local laws about that. And I, and I think uh, we're, we're all probably going to be learning a lot more about that in the in the days and weeks to come. But uh, at this point, I just don't know. Well, apparently, the Democrats in the state legislature for the longest time been trying to change the very loose state gun laws in Michigan, but they've been consistently blocked by the Republicans, and some of the bills were aimed at expanding background checks and also banning large-capacity magazines, and even even more reasonable and, one would seem to think, doable proposals mandating the safe storage of firearms, and as you mentioned earlier, enacting these red flag laws that enable courts to take guns from people who deem to have to be troubled or mentally ill or deemed to be dangerous, I guess. Now you have a Democratic majority in the state legislature. I don't know how quickly they can act. But what do we know about... We know that the red flag laws have been blocked, but was there a red, any kind of red flag law that could have been... I mean, the father now, that's too late, of course, has, has been interviewed and said he's son was mentally ill and was gripped by evil. How long that was the case, I don't know. But if his son is firing the gun out the backyard and the police are coming to the house, one wonders how they missed the fact that there was something troubled about this person. Yes, uh, I, I think it is troubling, but without knowing more of the details, it's hard to say what exactly they should have done differently. Uh, it, it might it might be that there's uh, a lot that they should have done. There might have been red flags abounding in this case. On the other hand, it might not have been. I Again, I don't know. There are, the, the red flag laws, I think, focus on not just people who are mentally ill, but those who are believed to present a danger to themselves or others. And not, not everyone who is mentally ill will meet that uh, threshold. So again, I'm not, I'm not sure in hindsight, clearly he was dangerous, uh, but I'm not sure what evidence there was. As you mentioned, his father has made it pretty clear that he believed his son was uh, uh, in, in a pretty dark place. 
and so I, it's conceivable that that a red flag law here would have would have helped. But uh, again, we just we just don't have those details yet. I I do think, as you mentioned, that the Democrats now that they control the legislature are are in a, a much better position to get these things passed. The the governor last month had called for this legislation, and and, and I think it will probably uh, move forward more quickly now. But but the votes are there. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what uh, exactly will happen uh, in the legislature or in court after these laws are undoubtedly challenged in court. But I think that there is some, regardless of whether any of this would have prevented this incident, I think these are all fairly uh, popular measures, common sense measures that would reduce the risk more generally uh, from, from, from guns. And, and, and we'll see. Uh, we, we, we don't have a good sense of w- what is possible because it's been decades since the Democrats have controlled the state legislature here. So I, I don't know. Maybe some of the Democrats in representing rural areas have pressure put on them to oppose this. I, I, I just don't know. We'll have to see. But there's definitely more support today for, for this than there was last week. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Brian Colt, uh, as I mentioned, McRae was able to purchase two guns in Michigan in 2021, and even though he had a misdemeanor conviction. And apparently federal law allows you to buy a gun if you even have a misdemeanor conviction. But Michigan state law says that the law is either a low-class felony or a high-class misdemeanor. And apparently, according to the state's attorney general's office, they, they are saying, so for the purpose of being able to legally possess a weapon, it's considered a felony. So even if you have a have a misdemeanor, a low-class felony or a high-class misdemeanor. So is it possible that he was in violation of Michigan law when he purchased those guns? It's possible. I've seen conflicting uh, answers on that. I know the... Um, the interview with a former U.S. attorney who's now in private practice. He, he said he he thought that McRae would have been barred from owning a gun. I've seen others say that because it was a misdemeanor, because he'd completed his probation, the, the law did allow for that. And even if he was legally allowed to purchase, uh, to possess a gun, it's not clear to me whether he did do it legally. I, I think that I saw a report, his father said that he thinks his Son bought the guns at a at a pawn shop. I I I don't know whether he bought them legally, whether he had them legally. Uh, we'll we'll find out. I also don't think that that too much turns on that. Uh, if 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 the question is whether we need more laws or we need to rather in, just enforce the ones that we have, I suppose that, that it might be relevant. But uh, if if the question is what would have uh, presented this. Uh, what would have prevented this particular person from committing this particular crime? Uh, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it would have uh, made a difference. We'll see. We'll, we'll get more information uh, in, in the days and weeks to come, and uh, hopefully, not have the same uh, cycle that we usually have of a lot of calls for reform followed by nothing 
followed by more incidents. Well, it's a strange period we're in, particularly in terms of education and campuses, where in Florida they're banning books, but you know you can't ban guns, but you can ban books. It's, something is sick about that situation. I, I don't know what this man was thinking in his state of derangement, but the classroom building that he went into is on the, the main street in East Lansing. Uh, campus is on one side and downtown is on the other. And I don't know why he went into a classroom to do this and not, say, a restaurant across the street. Um, but there, there is, there is something something about um, students in a classroom there to learn um, who, who deserve to be safe. Everyone deserves to be safe, whether you're in a classroom or in a restaurant. But I think there is an extra level of, um, of terror um, injected into what is supposed to be uh, uh, a safe place, education. Um, and this sort of uh, violent incident I, I, I don't know why it's why. Why is it a school? Why is it always um, kids just sitting in the classroom trying to trying to learn something? Um, now we have incidents all over the place, but but there is obviously something something that something that cuts deeper when it's when it's a classroom like this. Well, Brian Colt, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Brian Colt, who's Horace, who is the Harold Norris Faculty Scholar and Professor of Law at Michigan State University and the author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the results of the meeting today of the 54 country members of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. To the town of our free road, a stranger one fine day. Hardly spoke to folks around him, didn't have too much to say. No one dared to ask his business, no one dared to make a slip. The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. It was early in the morning when he rode into the town. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tatiana Kulakevich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, who was born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies, and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Tatiana Gulakevich. Uh, hello, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. And what is the takeaway from the meeting today at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany of the 54 country members of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group? Well, uh, Ian, we should um, uh, say that we are getting to the first year that the war was, is basically marking the first year, entering the second year on February 24th, and uh, there are a lot of different meetings coming every day. 
today um, regarding Ukraine. So Rammstein is one of those. We are expecting the uh, 17th and 19th February Munich Security Conference. And then the Biden is, is plan, plans to visit Warsaw. And then the, uh, the war started on February 24th. So every day, a lot of meetings and the news are coming. But today's Rammstein meeting was very important. It confirmed that uh, the, the West is um, supplying Ukraine with tanks, uh, Leopards and many other uh, tanks. Um, at least eight countries will be sending uh, tanks to Ukraine. Uh, that's offensive weapon, weaponry. Um, before that, uh, Ukraine was receiving more of a defensive weapons. And um, there were uh, several interesting uh, statements. Uh, for example, the Secretary of Defense, United States Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that uh, the West will do everything uh, to help Ukraine in its spring offensive. So we uh, we are looking for the spring offensive. Uh, there were a lot of talks, but this is an official statement um, confirming that. And uh, even more importantly, what he said, he said that this counter offensive um, uh, that Ukraine will be uh, mounting is going to be is just weeks away. Um, and um, so we might not be waiting for the May, as a lot of people are saying, May, June, maybe, but might be earlier, uh, confirming that um, there is a big commitment and confidence that Ukraine will be going into the counter offensive, even though we are observing that Russia is trying to um, to, to, to achieve um, whatever they can on the battlefield right now to deliver some kind of uh, uh, something for the speech Putin is planning for the one year, um, I mean, anniversary, you can call it, but that's not a celebration, uh, which is not go going great, actually, which is um, good news. You're talking about the offensive around Bakhmut. I'm talking about uh, uh, the offensive around Bakhmut, but even more interesting was the tank offensive uh, around Ugledar, which was um, the, the failed one. Uh, Russia lost um, uh, at least 100 military equipment and maybe even tanks. I, I need to double check um, uh, because they uh, what they did, they didn't learn uh, from their previous um, failures in March and uh, sent uh, the huge long column of tanks uh, in that area which was um, uh, targeted by Ukraine easily. So yesterday at the uh, NATO headquarters in Brussels, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said about the Russians in Ukraine, the Russians have lost. He said they've lost strategically, operationally, and tactically. Now, is this really solid, or is this wishful thinking? I mean, the Russians are building a foreign offensive. It's obviously not going well, but they're still building up. So what's your sense of whether or not... I mean, to say that they've already lost is pretty uh, radical, isn't it? I mean... There's a lot of <laughs> death and destruction going on, and it's, we're yes. talking about from mm -hmm. at least another year. And Putin does is not interested in a, in peace talks. So, where is the chairman of the Joint Chief getting his optimism from? 
from the fact that um, uh, Putin's plan was to uh, occupy all Ukraine and that's not possible and it has not been possible uh, for a while. And uh, the, from the fact that um, they are not achieving any successes on the battlefield and uh, the West is com more committed and uh, trying to speed up right now uh, um, as much as possible to supplying Ukraine with uh, um, uh, different kinds of military equipment, defensive and offensive. So strategically, uh, Putin already did not achieve um, its offensive and operationally as well looks like it. And even more importantly, we're talking NATO and the war started when Putin said, like told NATO to leave and leave the, 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 to the borders it occupied in 1997, and now the talks are the, by Jens Stoltenberg actually mentioned that it's almost uh, guaranteed or even guaranteed that uh, Ukraine will become a NATO member after the war is over. Uh, so basically, de facto, it is going to be or it is already a NATO member because it's already going to be supplied with all kinds of military equipment. And that's not what Putin wanted. He wanted to avoid that. He wanted to avoid Sweden and Finland being NATO members. He wanted to push NATO back and it's actually going and strengthening. Many European countries are committing uh, these days uh, or planning to commit more money and uh, financial expenses um, to, uh, to, to, to militarize. So um, he has, he, it's, it's the matter of, of time the, till the war is over, yes, Putin is not achieving his offense, his his goals in in any uh, area. Um, at the same time, I would say, still the fight is going. The people are dying on both sides, and uh, you and Russia is um, kind of still mounting its counteroffensive. Uh, it, it's offensive, let's say it's offensive near Bakhmut. And um, this uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine needs to stay and uh, keep fighting until it's uh, all this military equipment arrives on the territory and they start their counteroffensive. So it's not over uh, as is right now, but at the same time, Ukraine or the West are not going to to co uh, conduct any peace talks with Russia um, and, uh, until the time the last Russian soldier leaves the Ukrainian territory in the borders uh, uh, it has in 1991. So that's where all his statements are coming from and uh, they make sense even though the war is uh, still uh, uh, ongoing. So you mentioned NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg. He was in Poland today at a press conference standing beside the Polish Prime Minister and he expressed some concern about the urgency of getting this military equipment and particularly the ammunition into Ukraine quickly. And now, my understanding is that the Ukrainian military fire as many 155mm uh, howitzer shells in one day that the U.S. factory that produces them produces in one month. So I'm assuming at Ramstein today, the Ukraine Defense Contact Group have to be talking about ammunition. And obviously none of the NATO partners want to say how depleted their stocks are because that's obviously classified. But 
do you have any understanding of whether they're going to step up and have the ammunition? Because it, this is a real war. They're just burning through ammunition on both sides. Oh, that's true. That's true. But at the same time, um, they are committing in supplying the uh, ammunition to Ukraine. And today we heard a lot of, uh, you know, statements. One of uh, uh, the conclusion uh, from the Rammstein meeting was that uh, the ammunition will be coming. And um, I don't remember the, the exact um, ammo uh, uh, number, but even Switzerland, which was kind of saying that we are not going to be doing, you know, supplying that specific one, and and today they already will be, you know, they will be supplying uh, ammo, and if the countries cannot, for example, then. Um, uh, Denmark, I think, in Netherlands, I hope I'm not mistaken, for example, they are not going to be supplying tanks themselves, but they committed to repair the tanks, for example. So everyone is trying to commit and help Ukraine as much as they can and um, basically end this war um, as soon as possible. So basically from Lloyd Austin's uh, statements and, and Stoltenberg's statements, we, are, we, are, we see that um, they are actually interested in ending it uh, faster than longer, like uh, sooner than later, let's say, sooner than later, um, and not dragging it um, uh, longer than, than necessary uh, because they were, were making decisions slowly it's bureaucracy, it's very many different other um, uh, reasons, but now uh, we see that um, the commitment is kind of, we, we see that commitment right now, uh, and hopefully that's uh, going to be uh, uh, coming from the statements to the battlefield, and the war will be over uh, as soon as possible. So in other words, all of those delays that have gone on from, since the beginning of this war, the reluctance on the West to supply heavy weapons, and, you know, we know it just has been dragging on forever, and most of all, Germany seems to have been reluctant. But you're saying that there's a complete change of heart now. They're all committed to deliver as much as they can, as quickly as they can, and they believe that the only way to end this war is for a Ukrainian victory. And that's what they're planning on. And that's what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said at NATO headquarters yesterday that the Russians have lost. Oh, yes, that's correct. I, uh, I, I, from from my perspective and what uh, we could could observe during the within the past twelve months was that the West was uh, learning that the that Russia is not the second uh, most powerful does not have a second most powerful army, for example, that they should not be afraid of its nuclear threats, that they should be unified and act together, that they should uh, essentially get off that energy needle uh, that, that that they were sitting on I, I mean by I, by that I mean oil and gas and um, only now we see the statements that Europe is not dependent on gas and oil anymore and it took time and uh, there was disagreement between uh, again Germany was most dependent we we know that Schroeder uh, was uh, you know still st now working in in Russia and um, uh, that 
took time to realize that uh, Russia is not a reliable partner and it could can hurt not just Ukraine but threaten Europe uh, as well. The most understanding of that are, are the countries who are nearing the border, for example, Poland or Baltic states, uh, because it's like a next door. Um, but, um, well, it's it's unfortunate that it took longer than sooner, but now looks uh, that the West is unified, learned that uh, they should not be, you know, afraid of any Russian threats, um, and it should not get away with uh, just threats, and um, it's all whatever they want to do in the world and should respect uh, all powers. Uh, the commitment is um, uh, obvious because, again, we see all this uh, military equipment coming to Ukraine and the commitment to keep going until the victory of Ukraine. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, this may be a little bit off the subject matter, but do you have any idea, Tatiana, of who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines? Is that something you've, you've been trying to figure out? I know there was this piece by investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch that looked like it was literally dictated by the Russians. It was so absurd and so full of uh, holes. But nevertheless, you know, a lot of people on the American left obviously took it seriously because he's a fairly famous journalist who's done some important work in the past. So what's your sense uh, of what's going on there? Well, um, uh, the investigation will show who exactly, uh, what exactly happened, what, what the expectations were to see whether this um, pipeline was blown from the inside or from outside. And uh, the blow, you know, the, the how the pipeline looks visually should help to see whether it was kind of blow up inside, from inside, whether you can send this device that will basically blow itself uh, up from inside the pipeline. Um, and and um, what we know actually right now, I mean, I don't want to guess or, or speculate, but what I know is that um, uh, Gazprom is a tool that uh, the Kremlin has been using to, you know, enrich itself uh, and, and, and manipulate and receive money and buy off different politicians uh, in Europe before. And um, the second thing is that um, the Kremlin never uh, cared about, you know, um, kind of preserving Gazprom as a, as a, as a financial company. Uh, it has been using it as a political tool and even destroying it this company, its own company, to achieve political goals was not a problem for them. So if um, it was uh, Russia sabotaging itself, that also is not surprising. Uh, and it will not be surprising by, for many people because that's what um, uh, the, the Kremlin has been doing, even if uh, at its own expense. So there's no alternative scenario. Obviously, the... Cy Hirsch scenario was total fiction. But are there any other countries that would have an interest in blowing it up, like Poland, for example? And uh, uh, no, I mean, I don't see I don't see the reason for Poland, for example, or any other country to blow up uh, the gas pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, Poland has a coil, uh, so they they were they were able to do that, even though it's environmental and not not friendly environmentally. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, right now they were um, uh, they were trying to slowly 
be less dependent uh, from gas and uh, they would have been hurting themselves if it was European countries, it would have been European countries blowing up uh, the pipeline. And um, uh, the only interested party looks like it, it, it's, it's Russia that would have been interested uh, the, with the goal to threaten uh, that it will, the Europe would freeze. Right. And well, other than that, uh, I well, Ukraine has an interest, it, though. Tatiana, Ukraine obviously would would have an interest, but they don't have the capability. Ukraine, uh, ga- Ukraine, the, the gas was going through Ukraine up until recently, right. uh, and it's a separate pipeline. They and have they a didn't, pipeline and they going, didn't touch it. And they didn't touch it. They right. were they were pumping gas regardless of the war, because pumping gas, um, like even to sustain the pipeline, its operational capability, you need to pump gas right. through it, right. uh, just economically. And they also didn't want to um, uh, ruin the commitment, uh, the promises, there are contracts that you promise to deliver. Uh, and it was not in, uh, in, in Ukraine's right. uh, interests because they are they have allies in the West. The West is supplying them with military equipment and giving them money for economic uh, recovery later. So um, I, I don't see how that would have been, how North, uh, how North, Stream, the, the North Stream pipelines would have been uh, blown up by Ukraine. It has its own. They could have done, you know, damage their own first. And it would sure. have been easier because it's going through the country. Sure. Well, Dr. Tatiana Kulikovich, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Tatiana Kulikovich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, who was born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the university's Institute on Russia. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the Russian offensive buildup ahead of the first anniversary of their war in Ukraine and what Putin has in store on February the 24th. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stuart Kaufman, who is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Delaware, well-versed in issues involving U.S. national security, U.S. foreign policy, and Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He specializes in ethnic conflict, U.S. national security strategy, and international relations history. He served as the director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs on the U.S. National Security Council and is the author of Modern Hatreds, The Symbolic Politics of Ethnic War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stuart Kaufman. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously the war in Ukraine is not an ethnic war. There's not a lot of genetic difference, right, between Ukrainians and uh, Russians. 
but it is turning into a bitter, grinding slaughter. Uh, Particularly, uh, Russia is throwing all kinds of ill-trained and ill-equipped soldiers into this offensive underway around the eastern city of Bakhmut. Lloyd Austin, basically, just the U.S. Secretary of Defense said that they're basically untrained and ill-equipped. But it seems that NATO leaders, and I think the Pentagon as well, are leaning on Zelensky, saying, you know, why are you uh, defending Bakhmut and obviously suffering a lot of casualties? You can't have a spring offensive, uh, counter-offensive, at the same time defend Bakhmut. So I guess, is our side trying to tell him how to run his war? Um, Well, uh, there's always going to be an element of that. I think most of the uh, Ukrainian uh, successes have been uh, made possible by Western material support and intelligence support, right? So in one sense, the West is is inevitably telling him what to do by giving him targeting information, for example, and also by the by the flow of supplies. But you know the other the other side of it is that Zelensky certainly made clear that he's capable of ignoring um, any advice that he doesn't want to take, um, which is also very normal in these situations. So I think that's just kind of a normal relationship between uh, you know a belligerent country and its and its supporters. So I don't I don't see anything um, to worry about there. The um, I, I would actually want to go back and and um, and disagree with you a bit on one thing, which is you said that the conflict isn't ethnic, but it certainly is national. The whole conflict is about Putin's idea of Russian national identity as meaning that there is no Ukraine, right? And that Ukraine is therefore the rightful part of Russia. Um, I think that's really important because, um, among other things, it's kind of what turns the war into, in part, a civil war in Ukraine between um, the small minority of ethnic Russians who actually want to be part of Russia um, and the larger majority of of Ukrainians um, who, who want an independent Ukraine and want to defend it. All that matters because that's what explains the um, the passionate feelings of patriotism um, that makes possible Ukrainian resistance. So, you know, when you're looking at what the you know what the Ukrainians have on the battlefield as assets, you know, nationalism and patriotism are really near the top of the list. And could you argue that conversely? The Russians have a problem in that regard. I mean, if you or I were fighting on the Russian side, what would we be fighting for? A bunch of lies about the way we're fighting Nazis. Do you think is that weakening or is that in any way an indication of why the Russian military is doing poorly? What do we know about their morale? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the information about their morale is, is, is spotty. But, you know, we certainly know there are plenty of cases of poorly motivated Russian troops surrendering. We certainly know about the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of young Russians who have gone into exile rather than go into the army. And um, so, yeah, I think in general, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think there is a difference in motivation. The Russians are less motivated. Um, I mean, it's important to understand that a lot of them believe the lies. A lot of them believe that Zelensky is a fascist, uh, despite how little sense that that idea makes. And a lot of them believe that Ukraine um, you know, isn't a real country. I heard that many times, especially from older Russians. 
uh, you know, they think that, you know, Ukraine is just, a, you know, an area of Russia and, and Ukrainians just need to wake up and realize that. You know, the fact is that the Ukrainians are not going to wake up and, and, and start believing that. But if the Russians believe it, then they have something to fight for. Um, but again, I think I, I think it's clear that um, in general, there's more passion for fighting the war on the uh, on the Ukrainian side than than there is among sort of ordinary people in Russia. What you hear from Russia is more people saying, uh, you know, young people who are going to going to serve, saying, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to serve my country." Not necessarily enthusiasm for this particular war, but um, just sort of a general patriotism. The real motivation for the war on the Russian side is not so much popular opinion as just Putin and a relatively small group of, of outspoken militarists uh, who, who support him. But the dark side of Russia is emerging. It has under Putin, of course, it's largely a, a mafia state. But the country of, uh, of Chekhov and Dostoevsky and the Bolshoi Ballet, etc., now the face that it's putting forward to the world is of such hideous brutality. And, I mean, they just sentenced this reporter who reported on the bombing of a theater in Ukraine that had a big sign out saying children, and it was about 1,200 people in it. The estimates are, the AP estimates that 600 Ukrainian civilians were killed in the Russian Air Force strike on it. So she gets sent to jail. Then you've got Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenaries. His people are now on television. It's the second time they've shown the brutal execution of somebody that they consider to be a traitor, where they smash a guy's head in with a sledgehammer live on camera. And that's played all over the Russian media. So I'm just wondering, uh, are there any better angels left? Have all the good people left Russia? Is it really that dark? Um, I, I, I don't think it is quite that dark. Um, I think uh, um, Prigozhin and people like him are a small minority. Um, it's just they're an empowered one. So it, it's, you know, it's not that you know, the, you know, the better angels are gone. They're just keeping their mouths shut because right now they don't have an opportunity to express themselves. So, yeah, I mean, it's dark, but it's also dark on the Ukrainian side. There's, I've, I've heard reports of um, uh, Ukrainian atrocities also. You know, war brings out the worst in, in some people. Um, and that, you know, that is, it's horrible, but it's also to be expected. On the Russian side, there's, an, there's another aspect to it, which is that, um, you know, brutality is emerging as um, part of the Russian strategy. Um, they simply want to grind the Ukrainians into dust you know, because their ultimate goal is domination of Ukraine, always has been, you know, certainly um, for the last decade or more. So, you know, breaking the Ukrainian spirit is is precisely the goal. And so that explains the strategy, for example, doing everything possible to disable the power grid. So ordinary Ukrainian citizens are living out their lives in the cold and in the dark. The whole point is to break the Ukrainian will to fight. You know, the history of that suggests that it's not likely to work. It didn't work in World War II when the United States did a whole lot more serious bombing of Germany, for example. But that's simply part of what the uh, the Russians are trying to do. Again, Prigozhin is more extreme than most, but it's it's part of the same the same way of thinking. Um, but what you're dealing with here is is a basically a bloodthirsty elite, not um, a bloodthirsty population. 
So what are we to make of this statement from the Secretary General of NATO speaking uh, with Poland's Prime Minister today? He said, quote, Putin must realize that he cannot win, and for that we must continue providing Ukraine quickly the weapons and ammunition they need to retake territory and to prevail as a sovereign nation in Europe. And then he went on to say, together we send a clear message so there can't be a room for miscalculation in Moscow. NATO will defend every inch of Poland and the whole Allied territory. Is that to say that there's any concern that Putin could go further if he has a successful offensive that's now underway and somehow breaks the back of the Ukrainian uh, resistance, which most military analysts see as highly unlikely? So is that hyperbole, or is there any real concern in NATO that Putin has ambitions beyond Ukraine? Well, I, I think um, I, I would just interpret it as a, as a statement of policy. Um, you know, this is a policy uh, of NATO for decades. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think the first audience for that particular message um, is um, the people of Poland and Latvia and Lithuania and, and Estonia, um, you know, the ones who, who feel threatened. Um, so I, I think that, I think that's the main thing um, is this is reassured um, the, the you know the members of the alliance um, that the alliance as a whole has their back. It's strategically, yeah, it's it's a hedge against the uh, the possibility um, that there might be Ukrainian collapse. Wars are um, are uncertain business, uh, always are, and you know just the fact that one side you know looks like it has an advantage um, is is far from being a guarantee of of success. So, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of evidence that, that the Russians are, um, are improving their tactics, um, or improving their, uh, logistical capability and so on. But if they do, um, they certainly have more resources than Ukraine does. So the possibility of a Russian victory is, is always there, uh, even though it doesn't look probable right at the moment. So, uh, so you know, it's just being practical. I don't think there's any alarm um, uh, indicated by a statement like that. Um, it's, um, you know, again, it's primarily reassurance aimed at, at allies and um, deterrence aimed, you know, strengthening the deterrence posture of the alliance against the Russians uh, for future reference whenever that future might come up. So apparently there's going to be a special session of the Duma in Moscow a couple of days before the first anniversary of the war. What do you think Putin's going to say? I don't know whether he's going to address the Duma, but it looks as if that the, the first anniversary is significant, and that's why most analysts see these, this offensive underway around Bakhmut as building up to a crescendo on February the 24th. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's hard to know... Um uh, you know what Putin's going to say. I I I, uh, I don't have a good spy there, but my my expectation is that he's going to signal um, continuing determination um, to fight in and win, and he's going to you know beat the drums and and try to encourage people to show their loyalty to him um, and their dedication to the cause. So basically, I expect I, I expect more of the same. But. Is there any uh, weakening of support within the country? I think that Russians lost, what, 15,000 
in Afghanistan, but many argue that that was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. So if you lose 15,000 in a, in a losing war in Afghanistan, compared to the, the what, 200,000 probably they've lost already, and with their God knows how many wounded, you would think at some point or other that would be creating domestic problems for Putin, unless the casualties all come from the, you know, the far reaches of, this, of Russia. But I think at the moment a lot of them are also just you know, Russians that are being hauled in uh, in this giant dragnet that Putin has to um, dragoon people into the military. Well, I mean, you know, the other number you want to think about is the 20 million that Russian, that, well, the Soviet Union lost in World War II. So there's a huge amount of variation in how much, how many losses um, in both blood and treasure any country is willing to accept before it starts to break. And, you know, a lot of that is dependent on things like, you know, the effectiveness of the, um, uh, of the propaganda that the country is putting out, you know, on the material circumstances like, you know, ability to keep the troops supplied um, and, and equipped and armed, and, and most of all, the strength of the government itself. And, you know, the one thing that Putin has going for him is that he's an ex-KGB guy. And so, you know, the security services in Russia understand very well that um, they are doing very well for themselves. And Putin's continued power is their guarantee that they can continue to do very well for themselves. So I think a, a, a government doesn't crack, a state doesn't collapse until the security forces and other key government officials start turning against it, start to crumble. I think Putin has, unfortunately has the situation well in hand. So, um, so I, I, I would be very surprised um, if there were a major collapse um, of either the Russian army or of the Russian state. I mean, not, not this year um, and probably not next year. But you don't see uh, Prigozhin as a kind of a warlord figure that it often happens in, in countries when, they, when dictatorships collapse, uh, warlords take over. So you've got this Prigozhin with a private army. You've got Hadirov, the uh, Chechen leader with a private army. Is that a problem, or does Putin have them under control? I think for now Putin has them under control. I, you know, it is conceivable that, that they could uh, get out of hand, but I don't see for either of them the kind of widespread domestic political support that would enable them to, to really operate independently of what, uh, what Putin wants them to do. I mean, ultimately, Prigozhin is a, uh, is a contractor. The, the Russian state is paying his bills. All they have to do is stop paying it, you know, cut his supply lines, and you know, his, his people will, you know, will melt away. So, uh, you know, so things would have to change drastically um, before those guys could turn into the kind of warlords that you see in a place like Afghanistan. Well, Stuart Kaufman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure. 
And again, I've been speaking with Stuart Kaufman, who is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Delaware, well-versed in issues involving U.S. national security, U.S. foreign policy, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He specializes in ethnic conflict, U.S. national security strategy, and international relations history. He served as the director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs on the U.S. National Security Council and is the author of Modern Hatreds, The Symbolic Politics of Ethnic War. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by half past